0: are listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Haggai. I'm going to give you a head start on that and give you a little background. Uh, In case you're wondering where the book of Haggai is, it's right before um, it's Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. So it's right before, it's almost in the middle of your Bible, um, almost there, and it's a Old Testament prophet by the name of Haggai. I was reading this past week, and it's kind of interesting, just some of the different situations um, that are kind of going on in my own life right now and thinking through this, I told Jesse, I said, I feel like I'm living out the first few verses of this book. I said, this is just really strange, and uh, let me explain why I feel like that. I was reading about um, the prophet Ezekiel, actually, who was uh, kind of a counterpart to Haggai in the Old Testament. And you don't have to turn to the Bible, but I just thought this was a really interesting thing because if you're a Christian, I think you might have similar sentiments. If you're in ministry, I think you'll definitely have uh, possibly identical sentiments to this statement. Um, So I'm reading a commentary. Says this: E.C. Broom provided a psychoanalysis of the prophet Ezekiel, which is difficult to do in person, let alone with someone who's been dead for almost three thousand years. He labeled Ezekiel a true psychotic characterized by narcissistic conflict with attendant fantasies of castration and unconscious sexual regression, schizophrenic withdrawal, and delusions of persecution and grandeur. How many people think that's a great call from God? That sounds awful. Uh, What he's basically saying is that when you look at the Old Testament prophets, they're really stuck in this strange world uh, to really try to get inside of one of their heads would really be totally discomforting because you see them kind of having this strange hope of a brighter day, hope of a better future, but yet they're looking and prophesying to completely obstinate people, and it's this really strange tension. And, uh, and I can kind of, in a sense, thankfully, not to that same degree, but I can sympathize because it's almost as if you... What we're dealing with this morning is God's word... Uh, We believe as Christians that this is God's word to us. And that is really an outlandish claim. Um, This isn't a moral teaching. This isn't a moral instruction. This is God's revealed will and person to us. We say this often. Christianity is the only religion where we don't serve or worship a teacher. We worship a savior, a redeemer. Jesus is not a teacher. If you go to Jesus for teaching then you're doing something other than what he's demanding from you. He claims to be God. He doesn't say, I am a teacher, please listen to me. He says, I am God. You are broken, and you need to be saved. You need to be redeemed. He doesn't say, if you listen to my teachings, you'll be a better person. To reduce him to that is to change what he said. It's that simple. We we don't get to vote on this. C.S. Lewis put it very eloquently, I think, when he said he's either lord, lunatic, or liar. It's, we don't really get a, a vote on him to reduce him down and say, well, I think he's kind of along the lines of, of Buddha, or I think he's kind of along the lines of Gandhi or some other spiritual person. I think he's kind of along the lines of that. Because he doesn't give us the liberty to do that. He says, I am the Messiah. I'm God. In fact, see, to me I think it's funny because we want to reduce Jesus down to something that that even his first century culture didn't let him. He said, he looked at the man who's a paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they looked at him and said, this is blasphemous because you just counted yourself equal with God. And Jesus looks at him and says, so that you know I have the power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. So they want to kill him because he claims to be God, but yet we want to reduce Jesus down To a teacher. He doesn't let us do that. He says, this is my word. And where we find the book of Haggai is really interesting because yet in spite of the fact that God says something, which I would think if God says something, it would be the most important thing in the world, depending on our perception of God. I mean, if God's just some, you know, weak being, then I guess it wouldn't really be that important. But if we actually believe this is God... The creator of everything, then what he would speak to us would be and should be the most central, pivotal point of our lives. It should everything we do should revolve around what he says. Uh, everything. It's I'm not really as bad at it um, as I used to be, but like I try to. You know, you get a present or something for Christmas, and you you kind of open up the box real quick, and it's got directions, it's got instructions. And it's like, you know, there's only like 40 parts. I okay, like, get this thing together in no time. And you put it together, and at the end of it, you've got spare parts left over. And it doesn't make any sense what you're doing with it, but it works for a period of time. And it falls apart. And then you wonder, what is that piece? And until you look at the instruction manual and you understand who created it said this is how it's supposed to function, so that if I'm going to use it properly, I have to understand who created it. And, and it, it blows my mind because of really the callousness of the human heart. And I'm not saying this downwards, I'm saying this to my heart. The callousness of our hearts apart from God's grace that can look at what he says and yet still back away and go, oh, I'm not really quite sure about that. I think I know better. I think I can put it together on my own. So Haggai shows up and he says this. Now the interesting thing about this is that the people of God were taken into exile for 70 years. Their temple was destroyed. Now that's a big deal. That's not just like um, that's not just like somebody losing a house, which is a huge deal. You know, that's not just somebody like being displaced or having to stay in a hotel for a period of time, which can be uh, I can only imagine incredibly difficult. This is the temple. This is basically their whole um, belief and religion and view of God. Everything in concrete before them. And when it's destroyed, to them, it's basically all of their hopes going, it's this existential crisis staring right at the fact that goes, well, we thought we served God. And this is now destroyed. Maybe you've been in a similar place like that. Of course, I, don't, I doubt you have a temple in your backyard that was destroyed by, and carried off into Babylon, but perhaps you have. But maybe you've been in a place in your life when everything that you thought was going to work just came dismantled. And you're standing at it and you're going either God where are you or God what are you up to? Now what's amazing about this and we actually see it particularly in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Which Lamentations means basically to weep incessively. Which that's kind of a terrible idea. How would you like that? Everyone goes, I want to be used by God. And your call in life is to just go and cry and lament and weep about the church. That sounds like a rough day. I mean, that was Jeremiah's life. We go, you know, and I love that because, you know, we, we get it on like the little Christian coffee mugs. I've got a plan for you, a plan of future and a hope, a plan to prosper you. You know the guy that said that? All he could do is cry. And, he, and, and, and not only that, he was in like stocks. In, like locked up the whole time. So we put that on a, like a mug and we're thinking God's going to give me the job I want and Jeremiah's weeping incessantly going, i got a plan for you and it's a hope and future. But it's not right now. Because he's in exile. He's in Babylon. And right now people are speaking a language he doesn't understand. What happens though is that God by sheer grace there's no performance here. There's nothing that the people of God do, they really don't even repent and turn back and say, I want to, I, I, we really want you to deliver us, Lord, where are you? Like in Egypt, where there is some sort of cry. Really, God comes to Jeremiah and says, 70 years, I'm going to set you free. Oh, I love that, because that shows that, first of all, our view of God is built on his word, not our ability. That, that, that's really key. So God sets them free from Babylon simply because he made a promise. Not because of their effort, not because of their ability, not because they were able to do anything, which if we see the parallel here to salvation of being rescued from sin or our Babylon, we understand that it's not because of something we do, it's simply because God says, I've made a promise with my son and, and you are the third-party beneficiary. We have to understand this. that Christianity, unlike any other religion, does not revolve around our human ability or our effort now listen it doesn't necessarily take it completely out but we have to understand at its really at its fundamental state that christianity is about a covenant that god made with himself or what we refer to theologically as the godhead or the trinity the trinity God made a promise to himself to love people. He doesn't look at us and say, I need something. He makes a promise so at its most reduced, boiled down state, Christianity's essence is grace. God loving freely of himself towards people. There's nothing that we do or earn to get out of Babylon. He simply loves. So the prophet Haggai then comes in after they've been set free from Babylon like any good Christian would do. We're set free. 16 years later, they go, you know what? We should rebuild the temple. They start, they stop, and they go, Ah, eh, let's just forget about it. And they begin to take God's grace for granted. So he comes to them, and what we see in verse 2 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, It is a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Verse 5, this is what I want to focus on today. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways, he says. What's interesting about that is the word consider your ways literally means apply your heart to. It doesn't he doesn't mean just consider your ways and like take a second, but he's saying you right now, for whatever reason, your heart is detached from your actions. You're doing something in your actions that your heart has nothing to do with, and it's time to apply your heart to the situation that you actually have to see what's taking place. My mom, growing up, had a funny phrase, and I, and I know it's not original because I don't think anything my mom ever said was original. Which I think Bob Dylan said the same thing. Everything that's original, somebody's copying. So, but what's interesting about it is he says, my mom would say she'd go, uh, you know, somebody would do something really stupid, whatever it was, and my mom would go, "Well, common sense ain't so common." How many people said that? Their mom said it to them. All right, common sense ain't so common. So you, you, every time you do something, you would, you would see, and it's amazing that that can fit in, in just almost any scenario in life. But when, when you look at somebody cut you off in traffic or somebody just doesn't show up on time or do something, and you think, or for me, I am repenting publicly. Aaron goes, Jared, it's right under the sink. And I go, where? And it's right under the sink. And then she comes and gets it, and he goes, it's right under the sink. Because common sense isn't so common. I'm a master at not being able to find things that are obviously placed. I don't know how. It's a gift. I've tried to return it, and there's no receipt, so I'm stuck with it, right? But I I can't find things that are obviously placed right in... I don't know why. Uh, Honestly, it's, it's, it's a gift. I don't know how to look for things that are right in front of my eyes. I can scan a whole room. I can flip over couches, and it's right in front of me. It could even be my hand, and I still miss it. Because common sense isn't so common. And it's amazing because right now, how many people, uh, you, you've seen the Powerball lottery. It's, it's reached, what is it at now, 600 some million? It's incredible. Now, I'm going to confess, I left my notes right here. and I'm going to have to stretch because I, wanted, I want to read this to you. The Huffington Post had a really interesting um, thing. They were comparing your ability to win the lottery. You have a better chance... Listen to this. You have a better chance of picking a perfect NCAA bracket, you have a, which would be one in 13,460,000 chance. I wouldn't even think of that. You have a better chance of birthing identical quadruplets. <laughs> and it doesn't even just say for women. So men, you got a chance, all right? I'm not even sure. We've all seen Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. That was creepy. And also, what was that movie, Twins with him and Danny DeVito? That, that still gives me... I get the shakes at the middle of the night over that one. You've got a better chance of being an astronaut. You've got a better chance of becoming president, which I'm not really sure how they figured these. I'm just, gonna, I'm just pointing to them. I can give you the link. It's on HuffingtonPost.com slash 2013 slash 0517 Powerball Lottery Jackpot May 18th N 3293637HTML hashtag slide equals eight one eight I'll give it to you again if you need it. You've got a better chance of dying by a hornet, Sting. Well, I'm not even sure how that's possible. Um, you've got a better chance of becoming a movie star. A drowning in a bathtub, which actually concerns me because it's a 1 in 840,000 chance, which has a pretty decent chance, so I, we only have a stand-up shower at our house because of that. A royal flush in the first hand of poker. Dating a supermodel, a 1 in an 88,000 chance. Or I'm not really quite sure how, that, how they figure that, if there's that many of them walking around. Um... You've got a 1 in 18,000 chance of being murdered, so that's not too good. Uh, I'm going to pass on that. Now, this one confuses me out of, I think, the entire list. Um, well, there's a couple of comments, but one, dying in an asteroid a- apocalypse, um, 1 in t- 12,500 chance, which that concerns me, because I've got a better chance of dying in an asteroid a- apocalypse than, uh, well, I, don't, I mean, I get, it's just confusing. It's just a lot. Finding a four-leaf clover, one in 10,000 chance that you're going to find that. I, I thought I found one when I was a kid. I'm a lucky guy. Losing an appendage to a chainsaw, which is apparently one in 4,464. So um, Beware. And finally, last is if you're an author, Not this isn't everybody because that would almost mean somebody in here, would be, um, I guess, 220 to 1 chance of being a New York Times bestseller if you're currently an author. So that's not like, don't go home and say, I'm going to be a best-selling author. I've got, have you ever seen Dumb and Dumber? You're telling me there's a chance? All right, that's not, that's not what's happening. Now, it's, what's wild, though, you're thinking, I could be a best-selling author. You start Facebook and everybody, guess what's going on? I'm going to be a best-selling author. No, that's already if you're an author, not if you, 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 know, you, you like to scribble, okay? That's a different, we got a different class for that. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the lottery, it, it's amazing how, and, and if you're playing the lottery, if you win, um, I would encourage you uh, to tithe <laughs> to myself, and then we'll discuss the church later. No, I'm kidding. What's amazing about it, though, this is wild. People play the lottery. But I want to show you this because when, when Haggai says, apply your heart, apply your heart to your actions, he says, consider your ways. Literally, way out, actions and apply your heart. I just did some simple math. I do like business math. I thought this was interesting. I was researching a little bit about the amount of money that people spend on the lottery. Uh, Georgia per state, Georgia spends the most money on the lottery, which comes to $470 per adult in the state of Georgia. A year. Don't worry, not a week. That would be a lot. High players are considered to spend $150 a month in lottery. Now, this is interesting. Now, I would encourage you, if you don't have a retirement account set up, just, just get one. I don't care how old you are, just do it. You, you, just, you, need, you need to get that, because this is amazing. Because the lottery is something that, for whatever reason, it, it, it just hits something so scarily uh, intrinsic to all of us that we don't understand. So that in Georgia... Over 40 years, if you play the lottery with that statistic, you'll spend 132 or you'll spend, I'm sorry, $18,829 over your lifespan. If you, instead of doing that, would just simply put that in a retirement account, getting 8%, which is basically what is, a, is a, typically the goal to get, uh, and it's a, it's a good balance goal of 8%, you would have $132,000 in 40 years. So, you'll spend $18,000 and you're gonna, every once in a while, come back with that $20 ticket. And you're gonna, what are you gonna do with it? You're actually gonna take the $20 and you're gonna go buy more tickets. Really. So, and even if you win, you get taxed. And when you win, most of the people go insane after winning. And you can read the documents of them saying, I wish I didn't win. But yet, something in us goes, I'm just gonna play. If you uh, 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 spend $150 a month, You'll spend seventy-two thousand dollars over forty years. If you would have invested that at eight percent, you would have walked away with a half a million dollars. It's amazing. What does Proverbs say? An inheritance quickly gained is not blessed in the end. Comes nothing. There's something intrinsic. One of the quotes in the article that I was reading, it says this. Participating in state lotteries offers quite a bit of excitement for many people. Listen to this. Largely due to the prospect of winning potentially life-changing amounts of prize money. So there's something that overtakes people. Which is amazing. You watch the billboards and it says you've got a gambling problem. 1-800-CALL-THIS. You've got a gambling problem. Because there's something in us that I don't know what it is, but it's something in human nature that wants to be rewarded for something we don't work for or blessed with something that we never paid the price for. We have this idea. That's why American Idol was so great until William Hung came and then everyone thought that was funny and that's all they show now is awful singers. really wasn't that bad until him. But, but everyone lines up. And they think, I can do it, and half the people can't sing. But they line up, why? Because something in them, although they have no talent, they don't even know how to, most of the people don't even put their pants on properly. I'm not talking about wearing them low or high, I'm talking about that they, they come in, just totally like look like they just woke up out of bed. And they're like, I'm, I'm the next American Idol. I'm here. I'm it. Uh, well, tell us why. Because I want to be. Okay, let's hear what you got, and depending on how bad they are, I think we can recognize from the massive, uh, the thousands of people that line up for that. How many people know that? Which Randy Jackson is apparently retiring. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I'm grieving this morning, but uh, if you look, all the original American Idol judges are gone. It's the apocalypse. It's got to be in there somewhere. Um, But if you but if you look at it, it's amazing. Now those judges don't test everybody. They've got screeners. And if you make it past that, and that means it's got to be kind of deceiving because if you went to that and you made it past, in your mind you have to either think, I'm really good or they're going to make fun of me on national TV. One of the two. Because there's no reason I'm going before them because they're not watching a couple thousand people. But something intrinsic in human nature wants to be rewarded for something we don't work for or we want to be in a moment, we want our life to change. Haggai says, consider your ways Apply your heart. It's, it's because we have the same type of pattern that comes over into Christianity. And it doesn't make any sense. We say, I want to know Jesus. I want to be close to God. But yet, it takes somebody to come with the scripture and say, you're focusing on your own house while God's temple lies in ruins. Now, I would sit back, and typically, because this is something that's just kind of pervasive thought in Christianity, that if it's God, it's just going to happen. Well, if God wants me to know, know something, He knows my address. He's just going to show up. He's just going to knock on the door and say, Hi, I'm here to meet with you. I really need your help. Or He's going to send you a postcard. Or in the middle, God, where are you? Just give me a dream. Give me a vision. He shows up. I am God. I am here in response to your desperate cries. I would love that. Listen, can it happen? Sure. Does it happen? Yeah. Why does it happen? I don't know. Is it normative? No. How many people win the lottery? How many people does God knock off a donkey? First of all, how many people ride a donkey still? But we'll get past that. One in 2,600. Okay, that's not that bad. No. How many people ride... God knocks Saul... And turns him into Paul and says, I've chosen you. Now, out of 2,000 years of past Christian history, God does that. And I'm not going to say he can't show up and do something like that. But what concerns me is that the normative function of what God does is just by simply people waking up in the morning and saying, God, I'm going to pray to you. God, I'm going to read my Bible so that I can come to know you rather than trying to win a spiritual lottery. God, if you just would just do this, my life would change. And I honestly think God, in his sheer mercy, sits back and goes, you know what? Like being a Christian is not about escaping your humanity. It's not about somehow he goes, Yeah, I'm just gonna No, it's about simply going. I'm making a decision to follow Jesus. He says, apply your heart, consider your ways. Because simply, this is a good phrase. Direction, not intention, leads you to your destination. Andy Stanley's got a book just called The Principle of the Path. Direction, not intention, leads you to your destination. I, I'm, I'm not pointing at anybody in this room because I haven't had that conversation, but it, this always cracks me up, and I've got a, I think most people know it. I've got a. have got a sense of humor. It's not always funny, but I've got one. And I, I, things just, just, I just got to laugh at stuff. And it's, it's funny when somebody shows up, and they're, and I'm sure you've had these conversations with them, man, it's going to be great. I'm going I'm to be a doctor. They've got no passion for education. Zero. I'm going to be wealthy. You don't work. At all. <laughs> you've ever run into somebody like that? though? I'm going to do this thing. And they've got a list of dreams. And sometimes, which I think is even more hysterical, especially if you read people's, like, uh, bio, like uh, their little bio, like on internet websites and everything, everybody's an author, everybody's a best-selling author, a conference, this, everybody's something. And you look at it, it's like, well, where have you been recently? Um, haven't been really anywhere, but, but that's who I am. no. We've, you, it's, it cracks me up that I, I'm going to be wealthy. I don't work. I'm going to. I'm going to be a doctor. I don't go to school. Y- your life is a direct result. Turn to the person beside you and say, "Put your big boy pants on today." All right. And if you're a woman, to say, "Put your proper." I don't want to say big girl. I feel like that would be offensive. Just put your pants. Because listen, our lives. Just put. Keep your. Just turn to person and say, "Please keep your pants on." All right. We'll let's start there. All right. Don't put if you are if you came and you don't have your pants on. Just please, put get them on before we we figure that out. Y- your life is a direct reflection of the decisions you make. Now, absolutely, there's things that are out of our control, and there there are situations and 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 you know backgrounds that we're born into that. That really do limit our potential. Absolutely. I can't argue that. I can't understand all of that. I just simply say at the end of the day, our destination is not because of our good intentions. Well, I, 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 want, I really want to know God, but yet we do nothing. His temple lies in ruins. We go, oh, I'm not really interested. If, he, if he'd just show up and do this thing, we're a Fortune 500 company. What do you do? You're like, I'm going to be in the army. You play Call of Duty. A little bit different. A little bit different. I play video games. Dude, I'm number three in the world in Call of Duty. You shot yourself in the foot the first time you held a gun. It's not the same thing. We look for, we crave. Now, I'm just going to try to push this thing forward a little bit quickly here. Haggai says consider your ways. Apply your heart. Uh, We can do this probably in every single situation in our lives. Really look at... Is my head telling myself something that my actions are something else? I mean, we, we see this if you work at a gym or it's just kind of like New Year's resolutions. January, the gym goes whoop. February goes uh, By March, totally empty. Because I want to do something. We've got the intention, but then our life patterns totally contradict. That guy says... Consider your ways, apply your heart to see, are your actions congruent with what you're believing? Because my honest thought is this, is that functionally, like theologically, I think so much of, uh, and I can only speak in generalities because I don't, I I can't discern your heart. Theologically, we're Christian. Functionally, we're self-saviors. Theologically, we say I'm saved by God's grace, but yet functionally, it looks different. Let Let me explain it to you like this. Um, when Martin Luther said nobody breaks any of the other Ten Commandments until they break the first, which is have no other gods before me. When we lie functionally, I'm talking about deceit, deception, lying, when we do that, what we're saying in that moment is that fundamental to who I am, the most important thing is actually what that person thinks of me. Not what God thinks of me, but what that person thinks of me. So when I lie, rather than just owning my mistake, in that moment I say I'm going to save myself by justifying myself. Rather than just being honest. When I'm jealous of something, when I'm jealous of somebody's house, car, husband, pet, animal, I don't know what you, whatever you're jealous of. Body, hair. Not body hair. That would be unfortunate. That didn't. That would be an odd. There's a comma between those two. Body hair and, right? All right. I'm just jealous of that guy's body hair. <laughs> Buddy, I'll be right back in a thousand years, all right? So, but when, when we look at someone, when we're jealous of something, it's not just, I want it. It's not just like, oh, that would be nice to have. We see something we're jealous of, it's not it be nice to have. What we're saying at that moment is functionally, and I'm saying this for believers, if you're not a Christian, of course, um, your identity would be found in something else at this time. But if, as a Christian, though, what, when we come to Christ, what we say is that I'm willing to be vulnerable with my life and allow God's perspective of me and God's word over my life to dictate my actions. So I'm going to not... Listen, this is where we have to understand the difference between gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives, because it's very different. Let me unpack it for you like this. God says, um, actually, Colossians 3, if then, this is what Paul writes to the church at Colossians, if then you've been raised with Christ, so then set your mind on things above. Then he says, and put away the things of the flesh. So he starts off with the phrase... If, then. That's conditional. Um, You can't, like an if, then. If you win the lottery, then give me money. All right. You can't give something you don't have. There's no imperative until you experience the indicative. So he says this. If, then, you've been raised with Christ, so then, put away the deeds of the flesh. Set your mind on things above. Now, what's important about it is this. Is that Christianity, and I've tried it, I want to pack this down, is centered around God's grace. God sets us free from Babylon. God takes us out of captivity. That's the indicative. It happened, it's objective. You're not saved because you jump up and down, raise your hands, cry. You're not saved because you take communion. You're not saved because you are, you know, or baptized when you were little or baptize yourself daily, uh, which is not a Christian practice, It's but showers are you know, recommended. it. Um, totally different. But you, you're not saved because you do something. God doesn't look at us. We're saved because of what Christ has done. That's the indicative. It's objective. It happened. But then here comes, this is the life of the Christian. It all hinges on if then. If then. If this has happened, then the imperative, what is morally indicated to us, the response is a life that lives in response to what Christ has accomplished. This morning, all of us are really in one of three places. We're either currently still stuck in, in Babylon. I'm using that as a, a, a symbol. We're stuck in sin. One of three places. We're either stuck in sin. And let me, Let me encourage you, nothing you can do can get you out of that, Nothing can get you out of it because um, if we understand God to be God and us to be human, we don't get to change the rules. Uh, this is, we were playing softball this past week, and there was a real fast hit to first base. I was on second base, and uh, I jumped off the bag real quick. And this was this is really great. And I turn around and I got back before he could ta- you know before he could get to the base. And he was running. The guy was just running, trying to you know get me out of like a force out there, and. I was safe, particularly in my mind I was safe. And thankfully, the ump we know was, uh, was really prayed up because he accurately discerned that I was safe. Well, the shortstop on the opposite team wasn't a big fan of that call. And he goes, were you really safe? I said, well, yeah. Goes, Do you really think so? I said, yes. Like, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I was safe. And he goes, I don't think so. I said, well, that's why you're on the other team. And I said, well, tie goes to the runner. And then he goes, well, if it was a tie. And I said, well, it is what it's, the ump calls it. Now, it, it's kind of fun. We have this little going back and forth, all in Christian love. I said, I'm safe, bud. I I'm safe, hoss. It's done. It is what it is. Now, in baseball, the ump calls. He makes the call. I, I, I love that. If you ever watch baseball, one of my favorite things about it is on when it's when it's you know, a backwards K, when, a, when the guy gets struck out when he's looking. This is my favorite thing. Because an ump will always go, sometimes he won't, he'll just go, strike, right? But I love when that ball comes in and it's the third strike and the guy's caught looking and, you, and the whole stadium suspense builds to wait to hear, is it a ball or a strike? And then I love, the, the whatever that growl comes out of the umpire's, you don't even he doesn't even say the word strike, he just stops and suspense builds just like that. And then that, you can just see that batter in the moment, his just count as you, and he just stops. Because, he lets, because we're all waiting to find out who the, the superior law in that moment calls what it is. Now, you don't have a chance to argue. You can't rush the mound with God. You don't get to go like, I don't like that call, let's take it up. Lower the collarbone, you come out with a broken... You don't, get to, you don't get to rush them out. God says, this is who I am. So you can't get out of Babylon in your own effort. You, because God says, this is righteousness, this is the rule, this is a strike, this is a foul period. So then, we're either stuck in ba- Babylon, or we've been taken out. God's grace has set us free. And not only has God's grace has set us free, but there's two diverting paths here. Because irreligion just says, I don't care about this. I'm, I'm Babylon's, I like it, it's enjoyable. I like the food, whatever it is. It's tasty. I don't know what the dish was. But religion says this I set myself free. I did something that God said, way to go, good job. And because I'm out now, I know what I can do. I'll serve Him in my own human effort, or even possibly, really, it's the same response, is that I'm going to be apathetic. Apathetic Christianity is rooted in self-salvation. The only reason that we would ever be apathetic towards the things of God is if for some reason we think we've saved ourselves. That's the only type of gospel that will allow you to live an apathetic Christian life is one that thinks you've saved yourself. There's no such thing as an apathetic Christian. Amen. Thank you. Out of the mouth of babes. That's what it says in Psalms. I don't know how the babes will tell us. Bring it on, Lord. Or, we're stuck in this place. We're taking advantage of God's grace. It's really one of three things. We're either stuck in Babylon, and we're trying to figure out, how can I get out? Or, I really like it here. Irreligion. Or, it's religion. I see God's grace. I understand what he's done. I hear it. I hear what he's done for us. I hear this whole idea of, living a life for Jesus, but yet I just go, you know what? Um, I know how to do the order of this thing. It's not time to rebuild his temple. I'm going to do this thing my own way. And I'm going to look at things that are kind of like, you know, even though the ump's telling me I'm out, I'm just going to stand there swinging the bat. Buddy, you're going to hurt somebody. Sit down. We've either been set free. We've been set free and we're taking advantage, which is probably the most scary place you can be because you're not, you're only responsible, you're responsible for what you know. Don't you hate that when you get punished for something you didn't know that you were responsible for? Like, you're accountable for what you know. If you don't know the rule, you can kind of pull a mulligan, not a mullet, uh, that would be be painful. You can pull a mulligan and say, I didn't know. I'm not really sure. I I didn't know about it. Can I I redo? Because, we're accountable for what we know that's that's really the whole essence of this thing. Apathetic Christianity, maybe we look at our hearts this morning and we go, you know what i'm I'm just really not enthused. I would say for the reason is it has it has it has nothing to do with the glory of God. <laughs> He's the most this is the creator of heaven and earth. I'm not talking I'm not desiring it, I'm not asking you to reveal passion in the same way I do. I don't want you to hear that this morning. I'm not saying reveal passion in the identical way. It can be different. It can be fleshed out in in a plethora of different ways, and that's wonderful. But the idea of being an apathetic Christian just does not make sense. This morning, we're going to go to the Lord's table here. If I can um, have just the worship team come forward just for a few moments as we close. This is the... The realization of God's temple. Uh, Jesus actually refers to himself as the true temple. In speaking in the book of John, he says that if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And everybody looks at him and goes, oh, you're crazy. This thing took us years to build. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the house of God. I am actually in the book of John which is interesting chapter 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was god and the word was with god in the beginning and it says this and the word became flesh and dwelt the word dwelt literally means to tabernacle to temple among us this morning before us is god's body and blood broken on our behalf and as we take this we say this there's no condemnation if you if you don't desire to take this in fact I would prefer that if, you, if you're not following Christ at this time, that you would just, uh, and I'm not talking about if you had a bad day or a bad week. Listen, that's humanity. <laughs> or bad life, that's also humanity. But I'm saying in the sense of, let's, let's discern, the scripture says discern the body of Christ. He actually, scarily enough, says in the book of Corinthians, it's for this reason that some of you are sick and some of you have even died. I don't really understand that. He says that you're you're not discerning the body of Christ, discerning the temple. This morning, let's not look and say, I'm just going to take this out of my own ability. I'm going to take it because it's the thing to do. Please don't do that. Just please, please, please. I can't. This thing's too real to, to mess with it like that. Let's discern the Lord's body today. And let's come to him out of grace let the indicative of what God has done setting us free from sin and Babylon, let's now respond by taking God's body and blood through Jesus Christ represented to us in communion and saying, I will put you first. I'll put you first.